Hello and welcome to Eden Exchanges, the business journey podcast by Eden Exchange. Today we spoke to Dr. Ben Letellian, who is the director of Franchise Well, the advisor for Georgetown University, Washington, D.C.'s franchise program, and a recognized global expert in franchising. In this interview, Dr. Ben discusses how Franchise Well came about, the state of the U.S. and global franchise industry, and the key elements he is seeing driving franchise success around the world. Listen on to find out more. Welcome, everyone. My name is Raghu from Eden Exchange. As part of an ongoing special series on the franchising industry and everything franchising, especially for our expertise in relation to transitions, transactions, and all things new businesses, we're joined by Dr. Ben Latalian. He's the founder director of Franchise Well, and he's also adjunct lecturer at Georgetown University. So fantastic having you on today. Firstly, Dr. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you first become involved with the franchising sector? Thank you, Raghu. Great to be here. Appreciate it. I was uh, a business major in college, and when I graduated, I, I went to work in a data processing company in the banking industry and was quite happy doing that. And I ran into a gentleman who had invested in a business and something had gone terribly wrong. He thought I might be interested in giving him some advice uh, from a business standpoint. He actually was a very well-known attorney in Houston, Texas, had no interest in (laughs) running the business, but as it turned out, it was his niece's husband's idea, so he invested in it. And something went terribly wrong. It was an automotive touch-up business called Flying Colors. It was a unique innovation that they had created, how to touch up the paint on cars, and they decided to roll this out using the franchise model. Well, after they had brought on several franchisees, things went awry. They ultimately abandoned the company and the franchisees and left this attorney holding the bag, (laughs) both uh, the lease for the location that they had and all the franchise agreements, a loan at the bank, et cetera. So it was that backdrop that I uh, was introduced to franchising was very intrigued by the business model itself. I believed that it was a solid business model, but I didn't know anything about franchising. So as a young person might do, I decided to take a chance and see if I could turn this company around and and grow it. And so I became at that point a student of the franchise model and have remained that uh, even to this day. So that was my introduction to franchising. Yes, it's a very unique industry to become an expert in as well. And and how does that translate to your role at, at Franchise Well? Or, or how did that translate to the development of Franchise Well? Yeah, so I took on that challenge and met with the franchisees, figured out what the issues were, and I characterized them as dripping faucets. There was nothing really major, just they hadn't lived up to the commitments they had made to these franchisees. So uh, once we got those resolved, the business began to grow very rapidly, so much so that it attracted the attention of one of our competitors who offered to buy the business. And then I learned another valuable part of the franchise story, which is how franchise businesses are valued. And it was valued much higher than I had expected. And 
decided I could find something else to do. So <laughs> I, I basically found another entrepreneur who had a great concept, and I offered to partner with him to franchise it. And in three years, we had 130 locations and a really successful business. And as it turned out, somebody wanted it more than we did and approached us to buy it. So I, I, I kind of fell into this pattern of taking early stage concepts and growing them to some level of scale, only to be sought after by someone who wanted to acquire the company. So after four companies and over a decade, I was recruited by ExxonMobil after they merged in the U.S. to take over their U.S. franchising. And their, their reasoning was, we want to grow this from 120 franchisees to over 1,000 but we don't have any institutional knowledge on the franchise model. So, you know, they hired me to figure that out. So I created what's called the regional developer model, and we did a thousand units in four and a half years. And at the end of that time, I decided I'm not a big company guy. I, you know, I loved ExxonMobil, great people, but, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and I figured that out <laughs> the decade before. So, I left ExxonMobil and started Franchise Well in 2009 to basically offer my uh, consulting services. My interest was really with emerging concepts or entrepreneurs and helping them really understand how to use the franchise model effectively to grow their business. And so that was how Franchise Well was started. During that same time, I was at a dinner with some nonprofit executives. And one of them was married to a gentleman from Georgetown that managed their executive programs. And uh, she mentioned to him that I was a franchise expert and that maybe he should think about doing a franchise program at Georgetown. Well, that led to many more conversations. And I ultimately created the curriculum and uh, launched that program in 2010 and have been teaching it ever since to literally thousands of people from all over the world. About half of the attendees are international, flying into Washington, D.C. to attend these courses. And the graduates are actually alumni of Georgetown University with a certificate in franchise management. Oh, wow. So it's, it's very fascinating, the story that brought you to where you are, because it's great that you've actually been in the trenches. One, you've taken a franchise business scaled sold out and also done with a much larger company to a thousand units that's quite an incredible growth story there because that's really what fascinates a lot of our listeners that process of taking a company building it and then also scaling to a transaction level as well are there any learnings you can tell us about that process of exiting the franchise business and any key components that you think really drove the valuation and maybe even some of the other transactions you would have done over the years as well? Well, I would say my observation after now 30 years, <laughs> um, and I have consulted with IKEA on multiple occasions and done research on specific franchise issues that they've faced. Remax, I put together their Global Franchisee Forum, which is like a franchise advisory council for their 100 plus master franchisees around the world. And so, you know, that coupled with the ExxonMobil experience and working with entrepreneurs to launch and, and scale their companies, I can tell you that 
most, in my opinion, of the people using the franchise model barely scratch the surface of its capabilities or its power. Uh, it's a much more robust business model than is used in many cases. The proverbial you know, man in a truck, if you will, uh, owner-operator model that persisted for decades, you know, today is, is less relevant than the area development, the regional developer model, which is the one I used at ExxonMobil, uh, which combines area development with area rep rights. Area rep rights meaning they represent the franchisee in a territory to identify and qualify independent franchisees. And there's a revenue share. For example, in the U.S. today, there's 51 markets with a million or more in population. Many of my clients, our only goal is to find 51 franchisees, one for each of those markets. We're not focusing on, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Jones cashing in their CDs or their 401k to open up one unit and, you know, live their dream. There's certainly plenty of those kinds of franchise models out there, but to become a brand, a recognized brand, requires scale. And the franchise model provides the opportunity to scale a business to significant size. I mean, if you look at the icons in franchising, you know, McDonald's or Subway or uh, Remax or whomever, I mean, they scaled at a very rapid pace. And it wasn't by meeting each franchisee face-to-face one-on-one and you know, signing a franchise agreement. They used the franchise model in a different way that allowed them to scale very quickly, relying on very strategic, strong, and capable franchise partners to literally grow markets while they were sleeping. So I think that's you know, my, my observation. Many entrepreneurs that come to me you know, looking for feedback and input on franchising their concept, my interest would be on making them a household name, not on getting them to 100 units where they could attract a private equity firm to buy them out and live happily ever after. That does happen and will continue to happen, <laughs> but I don't think it's the highest and best use of the franchise model. That's right. And people can get into that trap of having a franchise business that's based on getting you franchisees versus using the model as the, the engine for growth for the rest right. of the business or the actual product or service you're, you're selling. I mean, have you seen that happen even to the detriment of franchises? Well, certainly, you know, the, the underlying business, not every business concept should be franchised. I mean, there's certainly a filtering mechanism that I use to determine, is this concept best grown through franchising. It could be grown through licensing, uh, distributorship, dealership, company-owned, joint venture. And there's lots of business models to scale concepts. And, And so I would say that some portion of the market are people who have an idea or a concept that someone convinced them they should franchise. And after, you know, so many years and so much money, They either have a few franchisees or they abandon the notion because the concept really wasn't suited for using the franchise model for growth, if that answers your question. It does. I think there's a a lot of thought that 
needs to go into this before going down the path of franchising. And I think the fact that you have a business, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is the best option for you. But however, if you are being guided by someone with the expertise to know when that model fits and how to scale it, I think it's a much better opportunity to make a, a scalable business if you know the, the, you know, you're ticking the correct boxes to make that correct. Now, I, I, so it definitely answers the question, but from your end, what do you think are the key fundamental practices of a well-thought-out franchise business model? I think the, the, the fundamentals, when you look at successful companies that have used the franchise model, first and foremost, it's developing the right relationship with the franchisees. And that really is embedded in franchisee selection. I would tell you the most chronic challenge to the franchise model today is franchisee selection. I'll give you an example. The franchise model, you're granting your franchisee the independence and the freedom to hire, train, and manage the staff that are needed to work in the business. And when you sell a franchise to someone, who has the money and has the interest, but has never hired, trained, or managed a person in their life, why would you be shocked <laughs> when they're mm. not successful? Exactly. Right? I mean, because the franchisor delivers. I mean, the, the word franchise means literally the grant of independence and freedom. And so what is it you're granting the franchisee? The independence to do or the freedom to do? Well, it's Hire, train, and manage the staff. It's their business. It's their responsibility to do that. And so franchisee selection should take that into account because they don't have those skills. They're naturally going to rely on the franchisor, which is very difficult for the franchisor to do. And it also creates a lot of potential liability if they try to do it. The second area is their local sphere of influence. This is another area where it's really is the, the secret sauce of the franchise model. Early stage companies, you know, giving a local person the rights to their brand, to their trademark, to their system, to their processes, to their supply chain. And that person, their influence is critical. You know, with any business life cycle, you have emerging, you have growth, you have maturity, and then you either repeat that or you have decline. Right? Franchising is the same way. When you start a franchise system, you need people who can hire, train, and manage people effectively. And you need people who have strong influence in their local community to build your brand. Once you're grown to a thousand units, those things aren't quite as important. Um, but early stage, it's the Achilles heel of many franchisors because they sell franchises to people who either don't have strong influence in their market or don't have HR backgrounds. And when you go about meeting franchisees who are a little bit past early stage development or incubation and are up and running, how do you go about now trying to enhance their existing franchise business in the market? And, and are any particular inflection points you think a franchise can work on to, to better themselves after they've, uh, maybe as an example, they've brought on their first 20, 10 units? Mm -hmm. Yes. So again, if you think about that, that S-curve, the life cycle of a business, and you put it in the franchise context, there is an inflection point where you move from 
an emerging brand where you're planting flags and you're gaining proof of concept to growth. And growth requires different people, different skills, different systems. So if you build the business model, if you will, to handle selling you know, one franchise a month, and all of a sudden now you've, you've gained traction in the market, you've got good franchisees, they're building the brand, and you're now selling two or three franchises a month, all of a sudden you're running a different type of company. In each of these stages, in the emerging stage, the growth stage, the mature stage, requires differing strategies. I can tell you, for example, as a consultant to Fred DeLuca, the founder of Subway, one of the geniuses of his franchising was he knew when to insert himself in the business and when to pull back. So after he made it through the emerging, when you get to the growth stage, you need professional management. You know, the founder shouldn't be running the company during that stage. The founder should be hiring people who have demonstrated ability running a company. (laughs) And then, unfortunately, many founders never transition out once they hit the growth stage. And they literally put a cap on their growth. Because many don't have those skills to do that. Professional management, professional trainers, professional development people. That's what accelerates the growth of a good franchise concept. Now, when that growth starts to mature and flatten out, that's when the founder can have a tremendous impact on being creative and innovative and elevating that brand to start that S-curve over again. And that's what Fred DeLuca did so successfully over four decades. And that's a very good lesson for any businesses going to that scaling process, only founders looking to scale, whether in franchising or not, but particular for this context, that ability to step back and do what you do best and, you know, and, and delegate the rest in order to get the business to the next level is quite a, a profound concept that not everyone can really get their head around. But in order to get that process going, the systems and, and training implementation that you provide to to these growth franchises? It sometimes is. I mean, I have never done marketing for franchise well. It, it's been very organic. People find me through whatever methodology or referrals, I guess. And, and so sometimes it's a company who's struggling. And as I evaluate I think of it from a medical, right? As a doctor, I'm, I'm doing an analysis. I'm going to do a, an exam, right? And what I you know, generally find are some of these issues that we've spoken about, you know, that, that the founder, you know, is unwilling or incapable of, of really stepping out of the way and finding the right person to run the company through that stage. And so that can be a challenge. It could be that they've made commitments early on that they feel obligated to live up to, but the person, for example, that's overtraining doesn't have the skill sets or the experience to manage training at that new level. Or the marketing, you know, maybe a friend from high school that they hired, it may be a, a family member they put to work. This happens all the time. But franchising, you know, I, I tell people if you want to be good as a franchisor, read everything you can on change management. <laughs> because Nothing in franchising ever sits still. 
you're in a constant state of flux. Every time you add a new franchisee, you've changed the, the recipe of your business model. And, and at stair-step levels, you've got to change your strategy. And many people struggle with change, right? They believe in change, but they're not willing to change. And if they're resistant to it, it is going to hold back the business from achieving whatever scale it was intended to achieve. Absolutely. Now, when you're dealing with all of these clients, you know, students, or and, and you're right in the midst of the trends going on in the market, are there any key trends you're seeing in the franchising space um, in America or even around the world that you think anyone in the sector really needs to pay attention to? Sure. Yeah, there's <laughs> could go on for a while, but yeah. I, I would say one that comes to mind immediately is what I call institutional franchising. Because of the power of the franchise model, the valuations that we're seeing by private equity and other firms in buying franchise companies, and also the franchise ag- aggregators, you know, Rourke Capital for one. I mean, they, I don't know how many brands, how many franchisors they are now, but, you know, 30, 40, something like that. So there's, there's these, the change afoot where there are companies creating concepts and franchising them in order to flip them, make money, right? The roots of franchising is, is really powerful. Entrepreneurs who create a concept and, and lovingly and carefully build it and nurture it to some level and then start putting it in the hands of capable franchisees who then you know, take it to the next level. I think that as people look at investing in franchises, you know, what I tell them is you got to really dig deep and figure out who owns this and what are they likely to do with it? Because I have some good friends that just, you know, they had a 36-year-old company. They started from scratch. They're 80 now, right? And, and, you know, they just sold it. But through that whole thing, you know, it was them and their franchisees working together to, you know, accomplish things and, and do things. Many of the companies today that own franchise companies are, are driven by, you know, the bottom line are driven by the economics. And while that's good for some investor types, for individuals who want to invest in franchising, it can be more challenging. So I, that's one of the, the trends that I see out there is who owns it and what are they likely to do with it uh, before you decide to be a part of it, whether good or bad. I would say another area that's really fascinating to me is that by and large, millennials have not shown a, an affinity for the franchise model. Many of them basically look at franchising as a job. I got to do what they say. I got to wear their clothes. I got to follow their rules. I got to pay them money. What's different about that than having a job? And, and so I think franchising in general has some work to do to really engage you know, this, the, the, the largest population on our planet today. And that, that population has access to more capital than any other generation in history. So they've got the money, they've got the education, but they're not really seeing a lot of value uh, in the franchise model in many cases. So I think we have, a, have some work to do to make sure that we're speaking their language, that we're appealing to their interests. When you think about real estate, I mean, you can put a big name out there, but what about the agent that's out there meeting and talking to people. What about, you know, a, a real estate company that is 
the franchisee's name first and the brand second. You know, that's the kind of innovative thinking I think it's going to take to engage millennials in a powerful way in the franchise journey. I mean, it's very interesting to see that trend. There is an onus of having a business model that is conducive towards getting millennials to take part in it. Uh, otherwise, the model is going to come into question if the a whole generation of business owners uh, are not seeing value behind it. What do you think is driving that? Because often people coming into franchising are looking for the ability to run a business and the freedom that comes in with it, but the security and structure that comes with the franchise. Is that really to do with the age of the millennials right now in terms of their mindset? Or do you think it's a, a whole generational shift that we're, we're all going to have to work on? <laughs> I think that we've been you know, fat and happy selling franchises to baby boomers for you know, several decades, and we don't want to change. You know, there's a concept I'm working with called Fit20. Uh, it comes from the Netherlands, and it's 20 minutes once a week strength training. And there's even, you know, a six-year scientific study that, you know, is proof positive that 20 minutes once a week can increase your strength over 50%. You know, the people that we're attracting to the concept are millennials, <laughs> not not the traditional uh, boomers, because they're they're too skeptical that 20 minutes once a week. But, you know, baby boomers... You know, they're like, no, you got to go three days a week, 90 minutes, no pain, no gain, you know, and all these things that they've been led to believe over time. And, you know, so they're like, why would I buy a franchise if I don't even believe in it? You know, and yet millennials are like, this is smart. Why hasn't somebody done this before? And and so I think it's the messaging, you know, that the concept has that's being presented that needs to be attractive, changing people's lives, helping them live healthier lives appeals to millennials. Millennials don't do anything, you know, capriciously. They want to know why we're doing this. They want to know that there's a positive impact from it. So while they're not being attracted to many food service concepts, unless they're a green tea concept or, you know, something that's new and refreshing. So I think we have a lot of brands that are going to struggle as the baby boomer generation continues to age, if they don't figure out a way to be relevant to millennials. And it's in the messaging. What kind of impact can we have in the world? How can we be a good corporate citizen and successful, profitable as a business? These are the kind of things that I hear from many, many millennials around franchise conversations. While we're sticking on the topic of, of trends, in Australia, it's one of the highest proportion of franchise businesses to regular businesses in the, in the world. So there's a lot of ongoing interest in franchising. Certain trends we're seeing here are with COVID as well in terms of the mindset, a lot of interest more so in the economic return of the purchase versus the be your own boss slash work-life balance concept to an extent that's reduced a little bit here with a focus on good models, good return, improved standing in your community while doing it. At the same time, a few sectors you know like healthcare aged care in-home care renewables innovative businesses 
uh, fast food as well continues to go well because of the Uber integrations. So these are just a few off the top of my head. Because the nature of our businesses, we generate thousands and thousands of inquiries for buyers and sellers in, in the market. So we'll talk to you know, thousands of people looking to buy. So these are some general trends we'll see from these conversations. But uh, say in America, or any key sectors that you're seeing as potential growth opportunities and also any counter-cyclical ones that are being pushed by some of the trends that COVID has generated? Great questions. Um, I'll start with the growth opportunities. I think as franchising continues to transcend the traditional categories that it seemed to be stymied in for a couple of decades, it's generating new excitement and new opportunities. Medical, you know, in the U.S., it's almost regular now that I come across or uh, see medical-related franchises. I wrote an article not too long ago on self-serve wellness. People don't want a prescription from a doctor to go get, you know, red light therapy. Why is it only professional athletes get it? You know, I want it. Why is it that only wealthy people get cryo treatment? I want it. Why do I have to, you know, have an accident to go to a chiropractor? I just want to go on my own. So the demand in the U.S. is self-serve wellness. I want to go to the provider I want, get the treatment I want, and I'll pay for it. Massage Envy kind of created the membership model demand by consumers, and that continues to persist in almost every medically related franchise that comes out. So I would say not just medical, but wellness in general, health and beauty, how I take care of myself, how I treat myself. I want to choose and and I want to create an experience for myself. So that's one that I think continues to open new doors and is really uh, open to innovation. I'm working with a physician now who's rolling out a wellness concept that is having tremendous results with patients who have failed to find sustainable results in the the medical community and and so you know it's functional medicine is the the larger category but he's built a a very prescriptive uh, approach to it that yields incredible results well it, we're not taking it out to the insurance companies we're going to take it out to you know consumers and and let them choose so i think that's a really powerful one and exciting one i think there's many more concepts to come in in that arena for sure. I think food service is going through a real identity crisis. COVID is the reason it was on its way before COVID hit, right? And it's really how do people want to interact with food? Off-premise dining is exploding. You know, the, the ability to have food the way you want, when you want it, you know, is going to have to do with packaging in the future. I, I mean, it's one thing to go through a drive through and get a soggy sandwich and, you know, cold french fries, right? I mean, it's not a great experience. So the best companies are geofencing so they know when their client or their customer who placed the order is five minutes away from the facility so that they can now make this fresh for them. Others are focusing on their packaging. You know, how do you put a pizza in a box and deliver it fresh? Well, make it and get it there within 30 minutes, but packaging is going to have a dramatic impact on our ability to transport high quality products 
and have a high quality experience when you eat it at a later date. So there's a lot going on. And those who don't embrace the technology and don't make the transition are going to fall farther and farther behind. Yeah, interesting. I mean, there are so many trends and sectors we could really tear apart. So I think it's probably due for a for a, a series of podcasts, Dr. Ben, in terms of each industry, <laughs> if we can if we can if we can get to that. Um, so you mentioned before about you know the capital available to people, millennials, but there is a big transition going on now with a glut of baby boomers in the market looking to exit their business. Right, being matched with, you know, like you said, a relative nonchalant in relation to the franchising sector by millennials and above. So that can lead to a, a potential tsunami or oversupply of businesses. Do you see this trend affecting the, the franchise sector in terms of the current franchise owner looking to exit and how they need to position themselves to attract a new owner? Definitely. Uh, I've, I've had several clients who, you know, have aging systems. And I, let me start by saying as a franchisor, you really need to look at your network through a few different sets of, of glasses. And, and one of those is, you know, looking more at your franchisees and their age and ability, right? So if you took a system with 200 franchisees and you plotted it, on a you know an S curve, right? You'd have franchisees that are in the emerging stage. You'd have franchisees in the growth stage. You have franchisees in the mature stage, and unfortunately, you'd have franchisees in the decline stage, right? So, one eye-opening discipline that I have when I work with companies is plotting out their franchisees based on their performance and based upon their age in the system. And I can tell you, franchisors are shocked. In their mind, they think their system is this young, aggressive, dynamic fireball. And when I show them the chart, they're like, man, it's a bunch of old people running this thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. they've, they've lived with it and it's aged. And it's like, wow, we don't have enough young blood in the system. We don't have enough fast growing. I've got a bunch of people who are at maturity. I did this with one brand and it was like 85% of their franchisees were mature or in decline. That means 15% were emerging or growth. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not the kind of chart you want to see if you're going to go look for an exit strategy, right? And so, you know, now you take that down to the, a microcosm, like I'm a franchisee in a system and my kids have no interest, right? I, I hear this a lot, you know, hey, I bought this, I built it, it makes good money. But now my kids went off to college and off to do whatever. Now I got to sell it, you know, because I mean, I need an exit strategy. But when they look at how they are performing relative to the network, most of them are, you know, mature or decline. And that's, you know, not a, an attractive place to be, you know, if you want to maximize resale. So a couple of thoughts there. One is many folks who've been running their own franchise business for a long time are just satiated at their current level. Much better to go hire a very high-powered, high-paid manager to come in and really crank that business up and really get it performing 
at the you know in the top 10% of the of the chain if possible god forbid you sell it to that manager that you've hired right but certainly selling it to a larger franchisee in the network becomes more attractive selling it to an independent business owner becomes much more attractive being in your 60s or 70s and just kind of you know babysitting the business is not a great message for selling at the top dollar absolutely now obviously the expertise you've grown over the years and knowledge is you know quite profound if someone in different parts of the world who'd be interested in finding out more or, or getting that process going with you how, how do they go about reaching out to you and what are your steps in really determining how you can help them it's kind of a double-edged sword on on the one side i don't do marketing and you know i've got a what would probably be referred to as a modest team or even a small team but another doctor on my team, you know, MBAs. I mean, I've got high-powered, very effective and capable team, but we're very selective in the projects that we take on, primarily around scalability, around potential. And so I guess going to my website, there's a form fill there. Someone could contact me or they could send me an email directly, you know, ben at franchisewell.com. And I literally on a daily basis receive some sort of communicate from somebody. And I, I, you know, typically will assess kind of what their needs are and try to connect them with somebody who I think is reputable that could help them. Oftentimes I just have a consultation with them and and talk about where they're at, what they're doing and, and see if I can help them on their journey or franchise journey. Sometimes I just uh, encourage them to sign up for the Georgetown program and really understand the franchise model so that they can extract more value from it. So, uh, you know, there's a few things there. I think I definitely never envisioned being, you know, the largest consulting practice in franchising on the planet. So that that's never been a, you know, a goal or an attraction. So we've stayed relatively small, very focused on helping our clients achieve greatness. I mean, one client that we started out with at less than 10 million will do 125 million this year. It's again, making good choices where we feel like we can be helpful, but our mission statement is franchising for the betterment of society. So I really focus on concepts where I feel like, you know, it's going to be a positive impact on society as opposed to, you know, not, not being negative towards franchises that I wouldn't assess in that category. They certainly could use the franchise model and be successful. But for my consulting practice, we focus on impact. I have social franchise clients, nonprofits that use the franchise model. You know, one that's been the most successful is Jibu, J-I-B-U. Started with a father and son and a very modest undertaking in East Africa today with almost 3,000 franchisees in eight countries. Um, it's just, you know, fascinating. So anyway, that's a little bit about kind of my approach to engagements. With the market, hopefully slowly but surely returning to normal, how is the, the Georgetown program progressing and how do people take part in that? Yeah, great, great question. Thanks for asking because, uh, we were down for a year with COVID. This program is really, it's an on-campus program. We do have an online component that is self-paced. There's a lot of good learning that someone can do. So we have an academy, it's online that they can go through. But then it's two, three-day sessions at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. You know, if you just 
put in your browser Georgetown franchise, it, it's going to be the first thing that comes up. I think it's, you know, it's got a long kind of domain name there. But if you just Google Georgetown Franchise Program, you'll find it. The courses are there. We have the, the first three-day course, I think, is in uh, September. The second one is in November. And then I'll do it again in the fall. It's a great environment uh, where you're going to be with other franchisors, sometimes franchisees, sometimes suppliers. I have a cohort of guest speakers that's literally the who's who in franchising, leading franchise attorneys and consultants and whatnot that uh, are part of that. So check out the agenda online. Would love to have you there. Fantastic. And we do encourage anyone interested to head to the franchise well site and also find out more about the Georgetown program as well um, and reach out to Dr. Ben to take part in it. Look, apart from that, Dr. Penn, it's been a pleasure having you on the Eden Exchange's podcast. A lot of learning for everyone, for our market as well. A lot of particular pieces of guidance that I think will be extremely useful straight away for anyone in that sector, whether a buyer, seller, service provider, and always a pleasure to talk to uh, experts in that area. So many thanks again for joining us today, Dr. Penn. It was indeed my pleasure. Nice meeting you and I appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts and certainly happy to respond if anyone wants to reach out. But uh, hopefully your listeners will find this helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Eden Exchanges was brought to you by the team at Eden Exchange. In this episode, we spoke to Dr. Ben Letellian, Director of Franchise Well business focused on the development and success of small business ventures. To find out more about Dr. Ben Latalian and Franchise Well or to discover other episodes by Eden Exchanges, head to our networking website, businessbuyinvest.com. You can also subscribe to the series on iTunes or Stitches if you're using Android. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram for recent info on the buying, selling and investing world. Thanks for listening.